We all need a shot of encouragement to keep us going. A new beginning with Greg Laurie is sure to help in your journey of faith. Hear it twice daily. Details at vision.org.au. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. We talk a lot about the way that the world is changing and people's attitudes to Christian faith are not immune from changes that happen in society. We might even be wondering if anyone is listening to us when we're talking about this good news, this gospel of the kingdom of God. Well, with the changes, the way we describe the world has changed too. People use words these days like post-Christian or postmodern, sometimes post-churched and post-reached. And all these changes make it easier for people to make secular ideas their default position when it comes to talking about issues of faith. If it sounds a little hard, we'll just say we don't really believe that anymore. Well, what it might mean is that those who choose to have no faith at all and oblivious to the consequences that that might bring to the nation. Uh, They also might be very oblivious to the consequences that might mean to their own future. So you can't really leave these sorts of things on the shelf. Let's talk through some of these issues today. There is a new book to talk about. It's called Evangelism in a Skeptical World. Dr. Sam Chan from City Bible Forum in Sydney is a practicing medical doctor. He has a PhD in theology. He's a conference speaker, an ethicist and an ex-rugby player. And Sam's joining us. Hello, Sam. Welcome back to 2020. Thank you, Neil. Thank you so much for having me. Sam, let's just uh, deal with the rugby thing for a few moments. Uh, With all those other great things that you do, it's not as though you were at the top level of rugby not playing for the Wallabies. Uh, What level did you get to when you were on the field? Uh, You know, when I played in high school, I was in the 13F, as in the A, B, C, D, E, F, the lowest possible team. Then I used to play for Sydney University, so I was in the fifth grade. So that was the lowest grade back then as well. So I'm a short little Asian, and I'm very slow as well. So I ended up in the lowest teams. I used to get concussed a lot. I used to get knocked out a lot. Okay. But uh, maybe not so fabulous on the rugby fields, but when it comes to to the classroom, though, you've clearly excelled. Uh, Practicing medical doctor and a PhD in theology, that's a very interesting little mix there. Yeah, yeah. So... um it, the journey began because I studied medicine and I just happened to have a, and practiced as a doctor for four years, just happened conveniently have a year in between jobs. And I thought, you know what? I know everything about the human body. I've done so many exams. Why don't I just take one year out, study more of the Bible so and get to know the Bible in the same detail I know the human body? And it began as a one-year diploma that turned into a, a three-year bachelor's degree then turned into a two-year master's degree in Chicago, and then turned into a five-year PhD. So there was a bit of mission creep there. I think I just love studying the Bible, and you can really... They say, you know, it's like a a little pool a baby can play in, but it's sort of like an ocean, you know, an elephant can swim in as well, and that's the Bible. 
I just loved exploring it further and further. And of course, when you do explore the the Bible and take it a little bit below the shallow surface, where yeah. a lot of people are sort of a lot of people are in the shallows, you go a little bit deeper, and you do get hooked on the meanings and uh, the theological way that you can mm. think about the Bible. And there is a sense in in which that people are in the shallows only, maybe the ones who are more inclined to be skeptical. Or uh, maybe there's uh, there's other issues too. People who do go deeper and actually their scepticism increases. What are your thoughts about this word sceptical and whether you're in the shallows or in the deep? Uh, the way I explain why the world is so sceptical, and so at least we can understand where our non-Christian friends come from, I say imagine I tell you that last night a UFO landed in my backyard and a little green man got out and he invited my wife and I into the UFO. So we went in and he took us to his home planet, Jupiter. He showed us around. We had a meal with him and then we jumped back into the UFO. And because of the whole space-time continuum thing, we went through a time portal and only one second of Earth time went by. And I usually ask people who he believes me and almost no one believes me. And I say, well, I've got another story for you. 2,000 years ago, God sent us his son, 100% God, 100% human at the same time, born of a virgin. And when he was alive, he raised a dead girl back to life, gave a blind man his sight again. More than that, he died on a cross for us. If we believe this, God will wash away all the sin, guilt and shame in our life. More than this, he rose from the dead three days later. More than this, if we believe this, his spirit will live in us right now. More than this, one day in the future, he will come back and set up a kingdom here on earth. And at that moment, our bodies will rise from the grave and be reunited with our souls. Then I say, well, who he believes this story? And at this moment, the Christians very nervously put up their hands because they realize the second story sounds even more unbelievable than the first story, yet we believe it. And I say, well, this is why um, the Christian story, as true as it is, is unbelievable in nature. Then I then ask the Christians, well, why are you happy to believe the Jesus story, but not the UFO story? I say, actually, a lot of it comes down to three things. Um, your personal experience, your community, and your facts, evidence, and data. So most of us don't believe there are any facts, evidence, or data to support the UFO story. Most of us have had no personal experience of a UFO, and most of us don't live in a community where friends we trust also believe in UFOs. But as I tell you the Jesus story, most of us believe there are enough facts, evidence, and data to support the Jesus story. Most of us have had a personal experience of the Jesus story, and most of us belong in a community of trusted friends and family who also believe in the Jesus story. And I say the reason why our friends don't believe in Jesus isn't because it's not true, but because by and large, they actually don't belong in a community of other trusted friends and family who believe in Jesus. So a big reason for our friends not believing Jesus is they don't have any Christian friends. I, I love reading the New York Times and I love the articles in there, but someone said last year that no one on staff in the New York Times knows any Christians. They have no Christian friends. So it's not just the Christians who are in a bubble, it's our non-Christian friends who are in a bubble. And that's why the Jesus story stays so unbelievable for them, because they just don't know anyone else who believes the story. So when someone does some further study about faith and they mm. get a hold of the Bible, and uh, of course it's not just the Bible, but when we start talking about 
archaeology and, uh, you know, mm. the study of mankind uh, and history, and we start to get a little bit deeper. This is where we start to uncover some of those facts, evidence and data that you're mm. talking about, uh, because uh, this facts, evidence and data sounds to me like it's pretty important to actually have some of that on hand when someone has a question about our faith. Oh, totally. And and all three play an important part. You know, so facts, evidence and data, personal experience and community. Uh, but by and large, unless people, you know, have trusted friends, they, they explain away the evidence or they, uh, the, or they find some other explanation. So say, you know, imagine the UFO is my backyard right now. Uh, most of you wouldn't be bothered to check it out. And if you did see, say, no, there must be some other explanation. So in my book, I argue there is a very important place for facts, evidence and data and the role of the Bible. And we need to keep returning to it, but also knowing the important role that trusted friends and family play in determining how people interpret that data. Now, let's come. I'll show you go. I was going to say, but you're right in that most of our friends actually haven't explored the Bible. They dismiss the Bible without having even read it. And this is where I find the, the stories from the Bible to be so amazing now. Uh, last year, I had to do the Bible in one year. I did that program with Alpha, and it was fantastic. And I just, you know, you rediscover stories in the Bible that even us Christians aren't used to hearing about. And I catch a lot of Uber these days. And with Uber, you know, there's always that polite conversation. You ask them what they used to do before Uber. They ask you what you do. And because I'm in professional Christian ministry, uh, I, I say, well, I'm in professional Christian ministry. And there's this always awkward silence. And then they ask me, well, what is it you Christians believe? And at this moment, I love to just give them a story from the Bible. Sometimes I tell them about Jesus turning water into wine, and that just blows them away. They have no category for that story. Or I tell them the story that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector, or the story about the vineyard workers who work different hours, but they all get the same pay. And I say, you know, this is what us Christians believe. And they have no category for it because it completely disarms them. Uh, they have never heard stories like that before. So I find stories in the Bible to be very good facts, evidence and data that we can go to. So Sam, let's talk about this word sceptical because we're increasingly in a sceptical world. Uh, It wasn't always the case. People were not always sceptical about the uh, the existence of God and uh, the fact that uh, you know He has influence in our lives today, but it's become increasingly a point where people have become sceptical. How did we get this way? Oh, several things have happened. See, I'm actually old enough to have gone to the Billy Graham crusade in the seventies, and I remember it, uh, it was a very different time in Australian history. This was the nineteen seventies. Billy Graham could get up and just give a twenty minute talk. And that was enough information for people to understand the gospel and to convert and believe and give their lives to Jesus. And I think it's because people were church, even though they weren't believers. That they were church. They had access to scripture at school. I remember when I went to Sunday school, in a class of about 10 children my age, there was only me and one other boy who was a Christian. The rest were non-Christians who had been sent there by non-Christian parents. You know, so everyone was church in some way, so there was enough Bible gospel information. So when Billy Graham comes, uh, you know, people know what he's saying and there's enough information to understand and believe. Also, we also make fun of Billy Graham for, you know, he has that famous line where he invites people to come forward and then he says, 
the buses will wait. And we think that's such a funny thing to say. But now he's realised people came to Billy Graham in buses. They didn't walk in off the street by themselves. They came from a church community, even though they weren't believers. So I think what's changed is people don't come from a church community. They have no Bible basis, so they don't know what we're talking about. So the language and the words we use just sound like gobbledygook to them. But another big thing, and I explain this to my Christian friends, is in the last 10 or 20 years, the storyline for the West has changed. The Western storyline now goes like this. It goes like this. We used to believe in God, but we also used to believe in witches, fairy godmothers, and unicorns. And then the scientific revolution came in the 1600s. It taught us to think for ourselves. It freed us up from traditional authority, like churches, governments, and parents. And we have to be brave enough to think for ourselves be true, be real, be authentic, and just be who I want to be. And so when we, as a well-meaning Christian, come along and try to tell our friends the gospel, they think we're threatening to drag them back, kicking and screaming to the dark ages, to the age of superstition, where we were the authority oppressive figures. So what I'm trying to say is in the Western storyline, we've actually somehow become the bad guys. And that's led to the scepticism in that not only do, do they not know what we're talking about, but they fear what we're talking about as if we're the bad guys and we're the oppressors and we're going to drag them kicking and screaming back in the dark ages and they're no longer going to be free. We're going to rob them of their freedoms. Well, it's interesting as you're describing all of that because sometimes people frame that idea as being in an enchanted world of the past uh, and now there's a disenchanted world in the present uh, and some things that made us disenchanted as you're describing, you know, even the rise of technology uh, that, uh, that and the rise of knowledge and the fact that we're all so uh, interconnected now and there's so many more stories to tell the idea that somehow or rather the enchanted world has gone away. In actual fact, the enchanted world is still there, isn't it? Because uh, yeah, there are still yeah. incredible things happen and even in the idea of a transformed life by the power of God uh, mm. This is an evidence that there is this level of enchantment that is still there. And, of course, in many other cultures, that's the, as the case as well. So we've become disenchanted. We don't believe the supernatural stuff happens anymore. Mm. Oh, totally. Oh. Like, um, and so with the Western storyline, that has set us free to think for ourselves and be ourselves. It's actually led to a lot of isolation and loneliness in many forms. So this is a great irony of technology. It's got us more connected than ever before, but it's got us more disconnected than ever before. People are lonely, they're isolated, they have no go-to set of friends, people who they can ask favours from or people who can look after their kids. And we can push this even further. Um, there's a book by James K.A. Smith, How Not to Be Secular, and he's actually summarized this massive work by Charles Taylor called A Secular Age. And they argue, and I think it's totally correct, that the secular world lives in what's called an imminent frame, meaning it says there is no God, there is no supernatural, there are no miracles, we're just atoms and molecules, we're just another species of animal on this planet, get over it. But it doesn't live like that. It lives as if there is a supernatural, or what they call a transcendent because we talk about hope, we talk about purpose, we talk about meaning. 
Uh, and these are transcendent things which only God can give us. So what I argue for in the book is every human, no matter how non-Christian, how separated from God, every human is still in the image of God. Every human, according to Ecclesiastes, has a cry for eternity. And so we're actually all crying out for God. A bit like what Augustine said, we all have a God-shaped hole, but we have these existential cries that we cry out for, and we're trying to fill it with other things. So what we can do as Christians is to say, hey, I know what you're looking for. You're looking for purpose. You're looking for meaning. You're looking for fulfillment. And and it's amazing. In the non-Christian world, there are all these words coming up. Each year there's a new buzzword. It could be well-being. It could be happiness. It could be flourishing. But they're all transcendent existential cries. And we're saying, well, you're actually crying out for Jesus. You're like the woman at the well who's looking for living water. Only Jesus can fulfill your, your deepest cries. And I think... Uh, that's what we can tap into with our secular world. They they say they're secular, but they don't behave. They don't live as if they're truly secular. They live as if there really is a God that they're crying out for. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Dr. Sam Chan is our guest from City Bible Forum in Sydney. We're talking about his new book called Evangelism in a Skeptical World. Sam, before we go on, let me just bring you back to City Bible Forum because City Bible Forums are in all the capital cities around Australia. You guys are dealing with engaging with people on all of these really tough issues very frequently. Uh, how are things going with the City Bible Forum overall? Have you got an impression? Oh, they're going very well. It's, so, yes, you're right, City Bible Forum. We exist in all the major capital cities. And each City Bible Forum for each city finds its own little niche, something that they find works really well for their city. So, for example, in Adelaide, they will put on three or four events during the year, like uh, cheese tasting nights, things like that, which are easy things that you can invite your non-Christian friends to. Whereas in Melbourne, they run a podcast called Bigger Questions. I was just there yesterday filming one of their podcasts for Bigger Questions. And that's where they have a live studio audience. And they find that one works really, really well. Uh, in Sydney, oh, we do so many things. I can't even describe them here right now. But just tonight, we've got something called The Edge, where we're looking at, at the imposter syndrome. And again, it's an easy thing you can invite your friends to where they can see things through a Christian worldview. And I argue that bit by bit, as people can see how livable the Christian life is, how more believable it becomes, and they're then willing, therefore, to see it also might be true. And I'll encourage listeners, uh, simply Google City Bible Forum and there'll be a link there to the capital city nearest to you and you can find out what's going on before work, lunch hour and after work. Uh, some amazing things that happen with City Bible Forum. Uh, Sam, let me come back to something in your book and we're talking about scepticism and uh, an open conversation about that and inviting listeners to be a part of uh, the conversation on 1-800-316-316. But you say there is a need for the gospel presentation today to scratch where people itch. Now, sometimes uh, sometimes we might feel as though we're being a little bit insensitive uh, with the gospel, and maybe there's uh, some good uh, appreciation of uh, preaching the gospel in season and out of season, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's what the Scripture says. But, but you're saying find a place to scratch where people are itching. 
And is that going to be different for everyone? Yes, I think so. So really, we're looking for common ground. We need to say something to say to show that we hear and understand where they're coming from. Basically, get them nodding their heads. So the, whatever we say first, they will say, yes, yes, you're true. That is me. That is my life. That is what I believe. So Timothy Keller says we have to enter their world first. We have to enter their culture, enter their storyline. Some stage later, we can challenge their storyline and after we've challenged, we can give them Jesus as the fulfillment to their storyline. But we need to enter first. So we see that with Jesus at the woman of the world. She comes looking for water. So he says to her, you are looking for water. So he enters the storyline. Then he challenges it by saying, but your water will make you stay thirsty. And then he gives himself as a fulfillment. But I am the living water and you'll never thirst. Or we can see that with the apostles when they preach to the Jewish uh, religious people in the book of Acts. They say, you guys were looking for the Messiah, and they quote the scriptures, and they would say they've entered the storyline because the audience would nod their heads and go, yes, 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 we were looking for the Messiah. But then they challenge it by saying, well, he came, but you didn't believe him, you rejected him, you crucified him, you have a problem. And then they give Jesus as a solution, but he's the one who will uh, forgive your sins if you repent. Or we see that with Paul in Athens in Acts 17. So to a pagan audience who don't have the scriptures, who don't know better, who have idols, he begins by saying, you have idols, you are religious. And they would have nodded their heads saying, yes, we are religious, we have idols, and he quotes their text back at them, he quotes a poet, a songwriter to them, so they nod their heads, but then he challenges them by saying, but hang on, you have an idol whose name you don't know, how can you worship a God you don't know? And then he gives Jesus as the fulfillment, well, there is a God who loves you, who makes you, but one day will judge you, his name is Jesus, Uh, this is the guy you need to follow and worship. So we see that sequence there, we enter, we look for common ground, get them nodding ahead, saying, yes, that is me, that is my life, that is what I believe. But then we challenge to show, huh, you have a problem, you have a deficiency, something's not going to work in your storyline. And then we give Jesus as the fulfillment to that storyline. Living water for the woman at the well, the Messiah you're waiting for, for the Jews, and also the God that you must worship to the pagans in Athens. Sam, let's talk through some of these things that are important to Aussies. We can talk about what the Bible says, and we can talk about times past when people had a different idea of what was true and what was real. But what are the biggest things that we ought to appreciate from having this faith in Christ uh, that come to us today, which others who are rejecting or sceptical about faith are missing out on in their life. Uh, What are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are, as I said, so people are so post-Christian, so post-church, so post-reached. It's almost like we have to start all over again. And so I think a big thing for us is... evangelism for us is a lifestyle change now. It's more than just a conversation we work into, a uh, lunchtime conversation. It's more than just an event we tack onto our church calendar. It's those things, but it's more. It actually has to become our lifestyle. So I think there are at least three things we need to do for our sceptical friends. Number one, we have to introduce them to our Christian friends so that we're not the only Christian friend they have, but so they also belong in a network of friends who are 
Christians. So my wife and I would love to matchmake our non-Christian friends with Christian friends. And so if they can belong in a community where they, they have more than just two or three Christian friends, the Christian gospel becomes way more believable. So I call this merging our universes, because as Christians we have two universes of friends, Christian friends and non-Christian friends, but we need to deliberately, proactively merge the two universes so our non-Christian friends also have a rich variety of Christian friends. The second thing we can do is explore creative ways to do hospitality. Uh, hospitality is everywhere in the Bible. We're just not used to seeing it. So um, as a kid growing up, I never used to notice roof racks because my parents never had roof racks. And that's because Asian parents don't need roof racks because they don't surf, they don't camp. But now that I've bought roof racks, I noticed they are everywhere. How do I miss roof racks? Almost every car has them. And it's the same with hospitality. It's everywhere in the Bible. Almost every New Testament book talks about it. And it's not just the words, it's the ideas. And hospitality is how we merge our universes and we open up our homes and we create what I call private spaces where people feel safe to talk about worldview and religions. And then now that we've opened up space, number three, the third thing we can do is in addition to all our other ways of telling people about Jesus, is tell stories about Jesus. I managed to mention this in the previous half hour. And stories just completely disarm our uh, non-Christian friends because they, they're not familiar with these stories. You can't argue against a story. And then in the story, we're actually giving them the person of Jesus, actually meeting the person of Jesus as he is, uh, a real life human being who is a son of God and he comes across as a person that they can know and trust and they might drop their suspicions and scepticisms about Jesus. Is it a fair enough thing for us to say, Sam, that when people have moved to this sceptical position, people who don't have faith in Christ, uh, the illustration of darkness and light is very important, Mm. I imagine, here, because as people who are believers in Christ, we say we're in the light. But for those yes. who are not, they're in the dark. And when you're in the dark, you can't see that you're not in the dark. You're just in it. Uh, the darkness is, in fact, dreadful. And I know people have that as part of their testimony. This is what I was in before. Now I have the light and things have changed. You like to discuss what is the alternative worldview. We talk about a Christian worldview and all of those things, the meaning and the purpose that we have and the freedom that we have in Christ, which is wonderful. The alternative uh, you describe as a pleasure-pain worldview, uh, the idea that uh, you know that you get into uh, sins and that might be pleasurable for a season mm. and then there are consequences to those sins uh, that really bring out the pain that follows. Uh, There is a different worldview people are living in in this day and age. How do you describe this difference between what it is uh, to be a Christian and what we have to offer as opposed to what those who are sceptics don't have? Yes, so the Bible gives us many ways of explaining sin and salvation. And so one way traditionally has been We have sinned, we're guilty, we have broken God's laws, so God now will justify us, he will forgive us. Another way the Bible often 
explains sin is you fall short of where you want to be. You fall short of where God needs you to be. But Jesus now will lift us up to where we need to be and where God wants us to be. So that's another way. One other way I've explored a fair bit is I use the shame on a model, which is there in the Bible, where, and this is what the apostles use usually to the pagans in the book of Acts. They say there's a God who loves you, who made you, but you're not honoring him. You're not worshipping him. And so there's shame in our life, and we have shamed God as well. So we need Jesus uh, to restore us and to restore honour to God as well. It's interesting, whenever I speak to high school students in a chapel service, if I try to go the traditional way, and nothing wrong with the traditional way, it's, it's biblical, it's true, but if I go the traditional way where I say, you know, God has laws, you've broken one law, you've broken all of them, you're guilty, you need forgiveness, you need to repent, they're not listening to me uh, because of their distorted understanding of Christianity. Uh, they're, they're not listening to me. But if I come through a different biblical way, I say, you know what, there's a God who loves you, who made you, He's given you everything in this life that you enjoy, but we don't worship him, we don't honor him, we don't love him back. We have shamed this God. Oh, every eye is looking at me at that moment because they sort of get what I'm saying uh, because they have an honor system now in our post-Christian, post-modern world, and they get that if there's a God who loves them and made them, they have dishonored this God. So I find that really works as well. And if I was to go the pain-pleasure way, I say, hey, we're all living for happiness. We're all living for pleasure. But pleasure by itself is empty and unfulfilling. And it, in the end, would destroy us if we keep looking for it. It will never fulfill us. Uh, it will never be what we think it is. So we end up enslaving ourselves because whatever we live for owns us and will destroy us. But there's a Jesus who sets us free from this. So I could use freedom as a salvation metaphor, and I find that really, really works well as well. So what I'm saying is the Bible gives us a rich variety of ways of explaining where we fall short of God's glory, and it gives us a rich variety of ways of explaining how Jesus saves us and restores us, and I explore these other ways, and that seems to have good traction in today's Aussie society. So those people who are skeptics, who are unbelievers, mm. you can actually describe, and you've done that just so beautifully, I must yeah. say, Sam, describing the way people are enslaved to mm. what we understand as Christians to be the sinful nature. And if you're able to describe that, then you obviously have to then be able to describe what freedom is. Mm. And if I was getting your perception, my, where my thoughts are going, because when we're Christian believers... We become followers of Christ. In other mm. words, we begin to follow a different direction because we know that God has not only his time purposes but his eternal purposes. And as followers of Christ, we go out of this nothingness void, this darkness, this enslavement to sin, and we begin to follow the purposes of God, which are the foundation for us having hope. And this hope is just so wonderful and so strong when we have hope in something that's bigger than we are and we're led out of the darkness. Uh, your thoughts on, on these really beautiful things that we have in this freedom of Christ we have as believers? Oh, totally. See, when we describe our non-Christian friends as skeptical, it's only they're skeptical about our truth claims of the gospel, but they themselves are firm believers in, in, in whatever they're living for. So they're not skeptical about that. 
So my strategy in evangelism is describe to them what they're living for. And I say, this is what you guys believe and you live for. And they would nod their heads and say, yes, yes, yes. But then I deconstruct it by saying, but you will never get it without Jesus. You know, it's Jesus you need to complete your storyline. So what's really, really fascinating is I listened to this um, lady speak on a podcast, and she's saying, you know, our parents' generation, they were taught to live for success, but they found it to be empty and unfulfilling. So we got told we have to live for happiness. So we've got to do whatever it takes to make us happy. It's every graduation speech of every high school and university. You've got to do whatever it takes to make you happy. But then this lady said that just made us more miserable because then we got told we've got to do whatever it takes to be happy. So we always feel like we have not done enough. Like, should I be more happy? Should I be more happy? And the great irony of happiness is you can't find it if you look for it. It has to be the accidental byproduct of something else. So now everyone, universally, Christians and non-Christians, are realizing, you know what it's about? It's actually about meaning and purpose. There has to be something we're living for or someone else we're living for. And you can only have meaning and purpose if there's actually someone else you're living for, a story bigger than your own story. And that's where Jesus comes in. He becomes a someone else we can live for and a story bigger than our own story to live for. There's this amazing book by Viktor Frankl. He's a Holocaust survivor. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. And he says, you know, you can have two sorts of lives. He says, I want you to imagine a woman who's rich and beautiful I want you to imagine another woman now. She gives birth to a child with profound disabilities. Well, at the end of their lives, the, the rich, beautiful woman will say, huh, what was all that about? I had a lot of money. I went to a lot of parties. I flirted with men. I had everything I wanted. What was that all about? Because she would have found life to be empty and unfulfilling because she had everything she wanted. That's the irony. Whereas the other woman, at the end of her life, will say, wow. I raised a child with profound disabilities that was rich and fulfilling. So Viktor Frankl's point is life isn't about pleasure because that by itself would be empty and unfulfilling. It's about purpose. And you can only have purpose if there's someone else you're living for, not yourself. If you only live for yourself, that's empty and unfulfilling. And that's where Jesus steps. And even Viktor Frankl says in the end, you need a God. You actually have to have a God to live for, for life to have purpose, meaning, and hope. And in the end, that's what we're all looking for, whether we know it or not. A comment on our Facebook page from Mike, who says, A Case for Christ, or The Case for Christ, by mm. Lee Strobel, is an excellent apologetic autobiography on his struggle with atheism and coming mm. to faith in Christ. He's just made that comment there, but there are lots of people who've gone through this whole process of having doubts about the lifestyle that they do lead, having doubts and being sceptical about the things of God. And then when they get into a search for truth, a search for meaning, like mm. Lee Strobel, they find that the evidence uh, is there that you were talking about a little earlier, Sam. Oh, totally. And it's interesting, again, here we see that we really do have two audiences, whether we like it or not. We have our traditional modern audience so that would be people my parents generation and for them it was really about searching for evidence searching for truth searching for proof and that and that's what really resonated with them 
but we also have a second younger audience, you know, the millennials, the postmoderns, the post-church. They're also searching for freedom and meaning as well as truth. So it's interesting, they're searching for two different things. Jesus will give it, you know, to both audiences, but they're slightly different searches. So Lee Strobel's book is fantastic. I still remember when I was in Chicago and my professor recommended it to me, so I bought it, lapped it up. I loved it. But there's another book that's only just come out this year. It's by Abdu Murray. He used to be a Muslim. Now he's a believer in Christ. And his book is called Saving Truth. And it's interesting. It's similar to Lee Strobel's in that it's about a journey to belief. But it's a very different journey because he's looking for freedom and meaning. And he's speaking to an audience that's also looking for freedom and meaning. And he's saying, you know what? You, as non-Christians, you believe in freedom and meaning, but if we're just atoms and molecules, if we're just another species of life on this planet, any talk of freedom and meaning is actually meaningless and confused. You can only have freedom and meaning if there's a God who loves us and who made us, and He sets us free. He makes us to be free beings, and He also tells us what we're living for, what our meaning, purpose, and hope is. So we're after these things, truth and meaning, they're complementary, they're two sides of the same coin that Jesus give us. But it is interesting, we do have two audiences, the modernity, traditional duty audience, and they love the truth and the proof and the evidence. But there's a younger postmodern, post-church audience, and they're after much more freedom and meaning, I think. Uh, wonderful thoughts in all of that. We are talking about your book called Evangelism in a Skeptical World. Let me take you back to the book because there is a chapter in your book that has what you call six strategies for everyday evangelism. And uh, one reviewer I note said this should be compulsory reading. And I haven't read it myself, but I want to ask you about it. Six strategies. Uh, what sort of things do you talk about in your book? Oh, Okay. Number one, I've mentioned some of these already. We have to merge our universes, get our Christian friends to become friends with our non-Christian friends and merge our universes to make lifestyle changes. Uh, number two, I call it the coffee-dinner gospel sequence. So rather than worrying about how am I going to tell my friends about Jesus, just begin with how can I get them to have coffee with me? How can I get them to invest like 10 or 20 minutes with me in public space making light conversation, and bit by bit that will merge into a dinner where we'll be in private space, and now we can talk for one or two hours, and conversations will go from interest now to values, values to worldview, and this is where gospel opportunities can turn up. Number three, we need to listen to them first, hear them properly, hear, understand, and feel where they're coming from. Uh, and then number four if I can remember what number I'm up to. Number four is we need to share our story as a story. They're going to ask us, well, what do you believe in? Why are you a Christian? And that's where we need to learn to how to share our gospel, but through our story as a testimony, how we journeyed into belief and the difference that God makes to our life right now. Uh, number five is tell a story about Jesus. You know, And I've been saying this over and over again. Traditionally, we've been taught to give points about Jesus, and that's good but he comes across as a point rather than as a person. Tell a story about Jesus and he'll come across as a person they can trust. And they'll have no category for the stories that we tell. It will just completely disarm them. 
And, you know, I can't remember what number six is now. Uh, <laughs> okay, no, 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 that's, that's, that's all right. Leave a little bit of curiosity yeah, there sure. because we yeah, might be thinking right. if we've got all six points, we might not need to buy the book, but I will be encouraging people to get a hold of it. <laughs> I better buy the book myself. It's like clickbait, six things, you know, to help you tell your friends about Jesus. The sixth thing will shock you. Not even Sam Chan can remember what it is. <laughs> but let's uh, go with point number five here just for a moment mm. because you're talking about telling stories about Jesus. Yeah. And uh, for those uh, you were listening a little earlier, you were saying you can tell the story about Jesus healing the blind man or raising a little girl from the yeah. dead. Uh, and if you tell that story, you immediately challenge this sort of non-supernatural worldview, and you bring into this whole, as you say, it, it disarms people because they don't know how to respond. Uh, but they don't want to. They don't want to say, "I don't believe that's true," because you believe that's true. In actual fact, what you're stating is a fact, and really, there's lots of great historical evidence that there's truth in the way that the Gospels tell these stories. So you tell the story, you open a, a big conversation, you open the door to faith in their own hearts. Oh, totally. I, so I'll give you one example. If someone says to me, how can a loving God send people to hell? How can God, you know, just not accept me for who I am? I, I'm immediately on the back foot now. You know, <laughs> I have to dig my way out of a hole, which I will be able to because, you know, uh, but... Another way is I immediately tell them a story. I say, hey, you know, Jesus tells a story about hell, and I tell them a story about the rich man and Lazarus. And they listen along, and at the end, I will throw it back to them, and they have to ask the question, answer the question. So I, say, I will answer, well, what struck you in that story about what Jesus said about hell? Do you think, you know, why do you think the rich man is in hell? According to Jesus, how do you not end up in hell? And, and the story now sets the agenda rather than my, my friend's question setting the agenda. I, I shared early in the half hour, I was in an Uber ride, and this woman said to me, well, you're in professional Christian ministry. What does your life look like? And I told her the story of Jesus turning water into wine. I said to her, why would Jesus turn water into wine when everyone's already had enough to drink? And I said to her, it's because it's an image of what life with Jesus will be like, both in this life and the life to come. So if you think by following Jesus, you will miss out. No, it's the opposite. By not following Jesus, you will miss out on, on a full and eternal life. So again, the story disarms them and the story sets the agenda. Sam, you are just wonderful in the way that you convey these things. And I know that every listener who's held on to our conversation, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster. Uh, when you, when you hear these sorts of stories being preached in your local church, and, you know, we can remember the stories better than we can remember the chapter and verse yeah. and all of those things. So just remembering the story is a powerful, powerful tool. And when we tell mm. those stories, God is doing something significant in the heart of the person who's hearing the story because they are being challenged as to what that story means for them today. So we've run out of time. And so I've, we've got to, we've got to uh, draw a line under our conversation here. But let me encourage listeners to explore these things a little more deeply. And I would encourage you to get a hold of this new book. Dr. Sam Chan is the author of the book called Evangelism in a Skeptical World. Now, where can you get it? As far as I'm aware, Kurong is out of stock. But you can get it on Amazon and the wandering bookseller 
is another source for getting a hold of evangelism in a sceptical world. And no doubt Kurong will have more stock before too long, so don't assume they're going to be out of it forever. But uh, get a hold of it if you can. And also, I encourage you to go to the City Bible Forum website, Sam Chan is with City Bible Forum in Sydney, but there are City Bible Forums in the capital cities all over Australia, and they do wonderful work, and they have engaging opportunities like this. Uh, not everybody has friends who are, you know, around in the shallows. Some have friends who are into the deep waters, and sometimes it's difficult to be able to set the pace. But you can go along to some City Bible Forum functions, and you can get some really engaging stuff that will challenge the way people think about faith. It's just a great opportunity to catch up once again, Sam Chan, and I hope we get a chance to do this sometime very soon again. Thank you so much for taking time to share your thoughts with us today on 2020. Oh, thanks, Neil. It has been so much fun. Thanks for having me. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.